morning is chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. As you're turning there, I want to uh, just read a phrase of a verse in Romans. Romans 11, verse 22. says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. Paul is telling us in the midst of talking about salvation, about those whom God saves and those whom God condemns. He says, Behold the kindness and severity of God. In our testimonies this morning, we saw the kindness of God. How good God was to the Breckenridge family and how good God was to the Raber family just in, in preserving them. And, and we can see God's kindness all around but there's another side to the Lord as well. It's not only His kindness, there's times when He is severe as well. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. And as we come here to Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9, through 9, we will see both the kindness and the severity of God. Now we love His kindness. I mean, we sing about His kindness. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my precious spotless Lamb of God. When Satan tempts us to despair, we can look at God's kindness about redeeming us in Christ. We sing about the cross. We sing about His kindness toward us in Jesus. But let us not forget His severity as well. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-9 through speak about both those sides. Now before I read, I want you to notice the very first word here in verse 4 is the word for. It's a word of explanation. And really, verses 4-9 through nine give us reason for Peter's statement at the end of verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he's speaking about these false teachers. And he says, their judgment from long ago is not idle. And their destruction is not asleep. And, and that ought to be a comfort to us, knowing that these false teachers, they infiltrate the church. God has got things under control. Their judgment from long ago, it's not just kind of sitting there, and His judgment is not asleep. It will take place. They will perish for their sins. They will be destroyed. They will not get away with their sinful actions. And in verses 4-9, through nine, Peter puts forth the absolute certainty of God's judgment upon these false teachers. They won't escape. It is sure. And yet, it is interesting, here in verses 4-9, through nine, he weaves in several stories of God's grace, His mercy and redemption and kindness to us in the stories of Lot and Noah. Protecting His people from the onslaughts of the enemy. And uh, when Peter does this, he takes us to some biblical history in verses 4-9 through nine and demonstrates how God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. My message this morning is appropriately entitled, God Knows How. I, I thought about like a, a, a bigger title. But here's my bigger title. God knows how to protect the godly and God knows how to punish the wicked. And that was like too long. So I just put it out. God knows how. What does He do? God knows how to punish and God knows how to protect. First, Second Peter chapter 2, 4 through 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and if He did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah 
a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And let me finish the sentence. And especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Verses 4 through 10a are one long sentence. You can see the structure there. How many times you have if, 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 if. Verse 4, if God did not spare angels. Verse 5, the implied, and if God did not spare the ancient world. Then there's sort of an implication here. But if God preserved Noah... And then verse 6, again the implied if, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction. And then verse 7, another implied if, if he rescued righteous Lot, then, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. You, you, see, you see the two sides of God's sovereign hand. On the one hand, he can keep those who are sinfully rebellious against Him until the day of judgment when they will receive their due for their wickedness. He can keep those, the wicked. And on the other side, He can rescue the godly from temptation. He can keep those who love Him and follow Him through the trials of life. Philippians 1.6 I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or Jude, verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in His presence, blame us with great joy. God can do that. God can keep us. God can protect us. And in verses 4-8, through eight, Peter gives five biblical illustrations of how this is the case. In the case of sinning angels, God didn't spare them. In the case of the sinful ancient world, God didn't spare them. In the case of righteous Noah, God preserved him. In the case of sinful Sodom and Gomorrah, God didn't spare them. In the case of righteous Lot, God preserved them. We, we see several cases of judgment, keeping under judgment, several cases of preserving. Five examples dealing back and forth. The kindness of God, the severity of God. And I thought this week about grouping them together, talking about God's kindness, one point, and God's severity with another point, God's protecting and God's punishing. But as I thought about this, Peter doesn't do this. Peter just goes back and forth demonstrating the sovereignty of God to protect and to punish. And so in an effort to unleash the Spirit of God, we're just going to go through it in the order that God gives us five points in my outline. Now, one thing before we actually get into these, I want you to notice that these are all historical facts. These aren't conjecture. These aren't unrealized hope. This took place. And so you can almost change this if to a, a since. Since God did not spare angels. Since God did not spare the ancient world. Since God preserved Noah. Since God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. 
Since God rescued righteous Lot. Since all these things, then God knows how. Because He has proved it in history past. How to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, Peter could have used other biblical examples to show this. This is throughout all Scripture. In fact, you might even say this is the theme of Scripture. That God will take the, take the wicked and will punish them. And then those who trust in Christ, He's going to rescue and deliver and keep until that final day. He could have used many examples of God destroying the wicked and keeping them. For instance, think about the example of the hard-hearted Egyptians who were in God's hand. In fact, God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart just to keep them until He destroyed all their firstborn. He can keep them under punishment. He could have used the example of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Psalm 106 mentioned this week about how these men rebelled against Moses. And God says, okay, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, you're going to get your due. Everyone, leave. Get out of there. Get out of there because my judgment's coming. He's keeping them there. And then the earth opened up and swallowed them up. He could have used that example. He could have used the example of the nations that Israel conquered when they took over the Promised Land. Listen to Joshua 11.20. It was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that He might utterly destroy them, that they might receive no mercy, but they might destroy them. See, God knows how to take the wicked and, and, and to keep them and to keep their heart hard so that He can punish them. God knows how to do that. And on the flip side, Peter could have used other examples. Throughout all the Bible, could have used the example of Rahab, the harlot, who was living in a midst of disobedient people and yet she's the one that welcomed the spies in peace. And God rescued her and kept her. He could have used the example of Elijah, who was one against 450 prophets of Baal. And yet God preserved him and God protected him and God kept him. When he went by the brook Kareth, even God protected him and kept him with ravens and encouraged his heart. Keeping the godly under temptation, from temptation. Or he could have used the example of Manasseh, who was God kept alive in the Babylonian prison until he repented. God, protected. God, God protects and punishes. But Peter didn't use any of these. He used examples of sinning angels, a sinful world, Noah, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot. You say, why did he use these? Well, in some sense it might be conjecture, but there are some characteristics of this that I think particularly help. First of all, God is directly involved in these. He's the one that bound the angels. He's the one that sent the flood. He's the one that told Noah to build an ark. He's the one that sent fire and brimstone upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And He's the one that sent the angels to urge Lot to flee to safety. Maybe Peter wants to show how direct God's hand in preserving and protecting He is and punishing. But I think what's also interesting is you notice all these, they all come from the book of Genesis. The angels, most people say, come from Genesis. The story of the flood and Noah takes place, Genesis 6-9. through The story of Sodom, Gomorrah, and Lot takes place in, Exodus, in Genesis 18 and 19. It's almost as if Peter is saying to his readers, are you doubting God's power and God's will to bring condemnation about upon false teachers who infiltrate the church. I mean, I've just told you verses 1 through 3 about these false prop teachers who will arise and how many is going to follow them and, and their end is sure. Are you doubting that God is able to destroy them? Are you doubting that God is willing to destroy them? Let me give you a few historical examples of how God has done this in the past. And surely as God did that in the past, He's willing to do it in the future. As God had powerful enough to do that in the past, certainly is powerful enough in the future. I give many, many biblical examples to you. But let me begin with Genesis. And let, let me just give you five examples in Genesis. 
And in fact, let me stop when my sentence gets too long. And uh, in fact, you know, we didn't even get through the first half of the book of Genesis to show you all of these illustrations. It's how God has always operated. He punishes the wicked and preserves the righteous. Be assured of this, people. That's the message. That's what verse 9 speaks about. It's the key verse, verse 9. Well, let's look at these examples Peter gives us. God knows how to punish sinful angels. Verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, it's difficult to know who these angels were. Uh, If you've ever gone to Bible college, this is always the discussion. Who were these angels? Um, We can put some clues to help us a bit. Let's just pick some clues here from the text. First of all, we see they sinned. In the Bible, sinning angels are called demons. They have the same nature as angels, only they've chosen the route of rebellion rather than submission, and we identify them as demons. They're really of the same nature as angels and demons, just some are fallen and some are, are not. Second, we see here in verse 4 that some are, these are bounded angels. They are cast into hell, they're committed to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment. They are reserved for judgment, they are kept, they are bounded, and they cannot get out until the judgment day. Now, a quick lesson in angelology, when you think about angels, you can think about them in two ways. You can think about them as righteous angels who worship God. You can think about fallen angels who follow Satan and rebel against the Lord. You can think then about these fallen angels, you can think in two categories. There are bounded angels and there are unbounded angels. The bounded, the unbounded demons, these are the ones that roam free the earth and do their damage, seek to draw people away from the Lord. The bounded angels, however, are the ones we're talking about here, the demons whose rebellion is so bad, they've been imprisoned until the day they're finally judged. Now, most of your translations here in verse 4 say that uh, God cast them into hell. It's a bit deceiving because when we think of hell, we think about, say, the lake of fire. We think about the permanent place of judgment forever, and, and rightly so. But these demons aren't, aren't quite there. They're more in like a holding place. Like a, a, they're, they're in a local jail waiting sentence from the judge until they get sent permanently to the federal penitentiary. That's where they are. Literally, these demons have been tartarized. That is, they've been sent to Tartarus. It's a common word used in Greek mythology. It's not used in the Bible very much, but the people of Peter's day would have been more familiar about it. Just speaking about the boat of the wicked is where it is. And it's difficult to know too much about this place. We aren't told much in the Scriptures. But we know it's a place for demons to be kept until the final judgment when they're thrown into Hades, hell, that final place. Now the question actually comes, what, what was so bad about what these angels did that, that they have been bounded and kept for the day of judgment with no room for repentance? The bottom line is we're not sure how we can make some guesses. Most theologians would trace these angels back to Genesis chapter 6 the days of the flood. It makes sense here because Noah is coming up here pretty quickly afterwards. There is some discussion about Genesis chapter 6, about these these sons of God who took for themselves daughters of men. And uh, these sons of God, sometimes in the Scriptures, sons of God is used of angelic beings and people say that these were demonic angels who then cohabitated with the daughters of men to create a mongrel race of demon beings, demon human beings. And we could, how many of you heard this before? Okay, a lot of you. You know what? Uh, 
best not to spend much time thinking about that. Um, we spent a lot of time talking about that. Um, as I uh, prepared for this message this week, I, there are a couple preachers I listened to, S. Lewis Johnson, John MacArthur, they spent entire messages just talking about this. We're going to pass on that. Um, because much of it's speculation. It might be true, it might not be true. If it's, a lot of things fit together. It could be. But the point is this. However these angels sinned, if it was indeed this, this way, it was so bad that God bound them and not permitted them to roam the earth as other demons do. And today they live in a place they are waiting God's righteous judgment so that God can make His judgment known to the whole earth. But Peter's point is this. It's simple. If God can bind angels and keep them until the day of judgment, then certainly He can deal with the false teachers who are wreaking havoc in the church. According to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, just down a few verses, we see that angels are greater in might and power than we are. But such powerful beings are no match for God. He can keep them bound until the day of judgment. And if God can keep the mighty, angelic beings bound for the day of judgment, certainly He's capable of dealing with puny human false teachers. And that's the point. Now, in mentioning these things, I believe Peter's point is that they ought to come comfort in our mind. They ought to come with a comforting influence. When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, it's an amazing thing that that does to our souls as we see that that uh, God's the one who's going to repay them back. I don't need to be in the business of having to pay them back and to bring justice to them. I can just say, God, vengeance is yours. You will repay. You have, Adam, God, in your time and in your way. It can allow us not to worry about the future, not worry about these false teachers. Let them go to their just condemnation. That's what Peter's point here. In verse 3, as I mentioned earlier, we see their judgment from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. And now he's backing up his words of what God has done with the angelic world. So rest assured in God's sovereign hand to punish these false teachers too. Well, next Peter calls to mind the world before the flood. We've seen his dealing, dealings with sinful angels and now let's look at his dealings with a sinful society. My second point, a sinful society. Verse 5, And since he did not spare the ancient world, and we'll bypass Noah here, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, without a doubt, this does go back to Genesis chapter 6. The Lord brought a flood upon the world. And the reason why the Lord flooded the whole earth and destroyed all mankind and animals upon the earth was because of the wickedness of man. We read in Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent to the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Shortly before the flood, God looked out and He saw the breadth of man's sin and He saw the depth of man's sin. He said the wickedness of man was great on the earth. If you take the broadest sweep of an evaluation of the moral compass of man, you would see that the corruption was great. There was much sin. There was much violence on the earth at the time of Noah. But if you would then take out your microscope and pick out any of the people upon the earth, and take them and put them on the observation table and take out your microscope and look down into the heart and look down really deep, you'd find nothing but wickedness there as well. He said, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only eval continually. It's not merely that their thoughts were evil. 
It's that every intent of the thoughts, that is every yashir, every formation of the thoughts of the heart was evil. Not, not just evil, but it was only evil. And now it was just only evil. It was only evil continually all the time. That's how man was. And by the way, after the flood, that's how man still is. Genesis 8.21 But when God saw that, in Genesis 6.5 it says, The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He grieved in His heart. When God created mankind, He placed Adam and Eve, perfect man, perfect woman, in the Garden of Eden. Perfect place. What became of it? An earth filled with rebels against the Lord. They despised His way, despised His name, wicked to the core. And so the Lord had a plan. He said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of a land, from man to animals, the creeping things and birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. And so you know the story. The, the fountains of the deep burst forth. The floodgates of the skies were opened. The rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. The water prevailed, increased mightily, covering the tops of the highest mountains. The result was simple. Genesis 7. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind and all that was on dry land and all, and all whose, in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life died. Thus He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky and they were blotted out from the earth and only Noah was left together with those who were with Him in the lot in the ark. Now, we'll get to know in a bit. We need to think more about the flood at this point. Think about the reality of what took place in that day. How many people were destroyed? We don't know. We say a lot of people were destroyed. If you trace genealogy from Adam to Noah, you come up with 1,656 years. It's real easy. You can just start calculating that. 1,600 years. He had lots of sons, lots of daughters. Henry Morris, in his Genesis commentary, estimates that there were 7 billion people on the earth at that time. Total guess, total estimate, but he's just thinking, they're populating, they're living a long time, how is this, how is this happening, how are they growing, how are they doing it? Estimates that. You know, maybe he's off by a, an order of magnitude. You know, maybe only 700 million. Who knows? But the idea is, if you read the accounts in Genesis, there were lots and lots and lots of people and how many were saved? Eight. Eight were saved. So you do the math and try to come up with a percentage, and you're pretty, you're pretty small percentage, regardless of how, how big you come up with your guess about how many people were there. As you weigh that, you see this. God doesn't weigh on the curve. No curves with God. It doesn't matter how many of the false teachers are. God can handle them all. God is willing to deal with them all. And God can. If God was willing to destroy millions and millions, perhaps even billions in the days of the flood, saving only eight, then certainly God will be able and willing to destroy all the false teachers, regardless of how many they are, and they can never outnumber God. Listen, you don't have to worry. God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He flooded the earth once, but as 1 Peter 3.7 says, by His Word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. 
kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God promised back in Genesis, never destroy the world again with water, but it will be destroyed again with fire. And these false teachers and those who follow Him will be destroyed. He didn't spare sinful angels. He didn't spare a sinful society. And now, let's, let's taste some good news here. Embed into verse 5, God knows how to rescue people like, my point number 3, righteous Noah. Righteous Noah. Look, look what was said about Noah. It says, But God preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. When God saw the earth was corrupt and filled with violence, and when He said, The, the end of all flesh has come before Me, for earth is filled with violence, I'm about to destroy all the earth, God said, Genesis 6-8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. According to Genesis 6-9, we read that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Now we know that Noah wasn't perfectly righteous after the flood. He had a drunken stupor from the vineyard that he grew. And yet God found Noah to be righteous. And you say, how is it that Noah was righteous? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says that Noah became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. As Noah believed God, as Noah walked with God, God reckoned his faith as righteousness and preserved him and his family. He became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, right? And it works, worked with Abraham, just with Noah, just like it worked with Abraham is that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Noah believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So, so in other words, they are believing and as God looks, up, looks down upon our faith, He then accounts it to us as righteousness. And what was true about them is true about us, true about everyone who believes in Christ, is that God reckons our faith to Him as righteousness. It's the glories of the Gospel of Christ. And that's what was true of Noah. That's why he was a, a righteous man. That's why he was a preacher of righteousness. And, and, and when you read the Genesis account, you can see the faith that Noah had. During the days of Noah, the earth was a bit different than our earth is today. The atmosphere was different. We know that because rainbows didn't exist back then. So something was, was different. Scriptures talk about waters above the, the firmament. Some have said maybe there's this vast, vaporous canopy of water above the earth at that time that, that shielded the earth from harmful cold temperatures, preventing winds and storms from coming, more of a peaceful place, a lot of people say. Um, according to Genesis 2, verse 5 and 6, we read that the Garden of Eden never had rain, but the Lord God caused a mist to rise from the ground. Many have thought that it never rained until the days of Noah, Rather than water being on top of the earth like ours is now in the, in the oceans, the, the earth maybe at that time was more like a, uh, an eggshell that had some waters underneath it, maybe a crust uh, around it. It makes sense then that the flood was described as the fountains of the great deep bursting open like a cracked egg that begins to ooze out, many have postulated, and that's what caused so much you know, contour today is that um, outer shell kind of fell down. That's the best that people have done today. So think about it. Here's my point. In the days of Noah, it may well be that there was never any rain. Yet God told Noah to build an ark because there's going to be a flood. 
took some faith. And I think the act of building the ark was a demonstration of the faith that he had. I mean, because according to all reasoning ability, I'm not sure it made so much sense to make such a big, gigantic ark. And it was gigantic. It held his family, Noah and Mr. Noah, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Mrs. Shem, and Mrs. Ham, and Mrs. Japheth on there, along with Noah's family, two of every kind of animal, some clean animals, and seven on the ark. And the ark was big enough to hold all these animals. It was three stories high. Pretty tall. You look at a three-story building and say that's how, how tall it was. It was longer than a football field, though a bit skinnier than a football field. Trust you've all seen pictures of what it was. It was, it was massive. It, it, it would fit more than 500 modern railroad livestock cars. 500 of them can cram into this thing. It had the capacity to save all the animals. And, and I do think that the size of the ark demonstrated the depth of Noah's faith. He built this thing in broad view of his neighbors. From best we can tell, he pieced together some scriptures. Probably took him 120 years to build the ark. As uh, Peter says here, he was a preacher of righteousness. 120 years preaching. He said, what's that big thing there in your backyard, Noah? Well, there's a flood coming and we need to live righteously. <laughs> you know, and they certainly mocked him, ridiculed the entire time. What are you doing wasting 120 years of your life building this large thing? He preached righteousness for 120 years without a convert. Noah believed God. Noah walked with God. And you say, how did he do it? Because certainly, I, I'm thinking, as Noah's building this ark, and people are mocking him and making fun of him as he's a social outcast, uh, certainly there were days of discouragement. Certainly there were days he wanted to quit. But I think that God was the one who sustained him through his trials and delivered his life, even when all perished around him in the flood. Even as it says that God preserved Noah. You get the idea there of, a, of an active hand of God preserving and keeping and protecting Noah. And I hope this brings comfort to your soul, regardless of how bad it gets. I don't care how many false teachers arise in the church. I don't care how poor the church looks. God is on His throne and God will rescue the righteous who trust in Him. He knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. He knows. God knows how to judge sinful angels. He knows how to judge a sinful society. He knows how to protect people like righteous Noah. Here's our fourth example. God knows how to judge a sinful city. Verse 6, And since... He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is told in Genesis 18 and 19 when the Lord visited Abraham and told him that he and Sarah would have a child in their old age. The conversation drifted to Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord said the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. And their sin is exceedingly grave. Their outcry has come to me. So he planned to destroy the city. It's almost as if God is up in heaven and he, he, he can like smell this unrighteousness. Their outcry, their wickedness has come up before me. In recent days I've been working on Jonah. As we'll get to hopefully after Second Peter. We'll get to four weeks in Jonah. But... In the second verse, the word of the Lord came to Amittai. God told Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. 
Nineveh, a wicked city, and, and somehow the wickedness was coming up before God. And so likewise, Sodom and Gomorrah, this wickedness was coming up before God. And, and, he, and he smelled it, and he saw it, and he observed it, and he said, it is so bad, I'm going to destroy the city. Perhaps you remember the story that Abraham caught wind of this and said, God, you, you wouldn't destroy the city, would you, if there are 50 righteous people in there? And God said, no, I, I, won't, I won't do that. If I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole city on their account. And then Abraham pleaded again with humility and reverence. He said, what if there are 45? Will you destroy the city? And God says, I won't destroy the city for 45. And then he asked for 40. And then he asked for 30. And then he asked for 20. And then he asked for 10. If there are 10 righteous people, God, will you destroy the city? He says, I will not destroy the city on account of the 10. Now, for some reason, Abraham stopped right there. Maybe Abraham thought that ten was enough. I mean, he knew Abraham, and he knew his daughters, and he knew the, some of them were married, he knew his wife, and maybe he was counting ten. I'm not exactly sure. But for the sake of ten people, God would not destroy the city. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? Genesis 18.25 But as the story unfolds, there weren't ten righteous people in the city. Peter tells of one who was Lot, Again, like, no, we'll get to him in a bit. We need to tell of Sodom and Gomorrah how God kept them under punishment and condemned them. When you read the Genesis account about Sodom and Gomorrah, you are struck with the sinfulness of the city. When, uh, when God sent the angels to go and capture, rescue Lot, um, Lot saw they were beautiful. They planned to spend the time in the gate. Lot said, don't spend it out here in the city square. Because you, that wouldn't be good. And they said, no, we'll stay out here. Lot said, no, 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 that would not be good. He knew the wickedness of the people, that they would molest them. So he said, bring him into the house. Lot knew of the sinfulness of people. And as evening approached, the men of the city of Sodom surrounded the house. They saw these two attractive men. They said, come, let us, let us have relations with them. Let us have homosexual behavior with them. And Lot said, no, no, no. No, no, no. Tried to persuade them. Couldn't persuade them. Finally, the Lord struck them with blindness to protect Lot and his family so that they couldn't find the door. And it says in Genesis 19.11, they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. So strong was their lust that blindness didn't even stop it. That was the extent of their wickedness and God was incited to destroy that city on account of that. As Lot and his daughters escaped, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Um, Just an awful, minerally destructive, smelly place. And it it was leveled flat. When Abraham looked down toward Sodom, toward the land of the valley, the smoke of the land ascended like smoke of a furnace. Here's the point. If God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction, if He reduced them to ashes, don't you think He knows how to destroy false teachers that will rise in the church? Of course He does. He can reduce them to ashes. God can burn houses and God can bring car crashes. He can do it very easily. In fact, Peter tells us in verse 6 that the destruction of cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. We ought to see Sodom and Gomorrah as a lesson. 
and learn its lesson well. In fact, throughout the Bible, after Genesis 19, there are some 20 times at least, I counted, in which Sodom particularly is brought up as such a wicked people deserving judgment. The memory of God's work in Sodom is is one often that's used as an example of wickedness. And God was saying, remember what God said and did to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're examples to us of how God will punish the wicked. Look at verse 7. They are an example to those who would live in godly lives thereafter. You want to live in a godly life thereafter? Think about Sodom. Think about Gomorrah. It's a direct threat to false teachers of Peter's day. It's a direct threat to false teachers of today. You want to live in a godly life? Well, Well, consider and think about, remember what Sodom and Gomorrah happened to them because that same fate awaits you. And for those in the church who feel the weight, the sin of false teachers, be comforted. Be comforted because God knows how to deal with it. God dealt with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he can deal with the false teachers today. That's Peter's point. Well, let's look at our fifth example here. Righteous Lot. God knows how to rescue people like Righteous Lot. Verses 6 and 7. And if he rescued Righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We see here, Peter identifying Lot as righteous three times. He's called in verse 7, righteous Lot. He's described in verse 8 as being a righteous man. He's described in verse 8 as having a righteous soul. It's interesting, you go back and read the account of Lot, you have to look long and hard until you say, man, he was a righteous man. He comes on the scene in Genesis 13. We see him... Abraham, standing up there, said, I don't want conflict between us. You choose which side you want to go. You want to go on this side of the Jordan Valley? You want to go that side of the Jordan Valley? And he looked over here and he said, uh, wow, the land looks really good. Even though the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were at that time even notorious sinners. Lot was a worldly man choosing the pleasures of the world and the nice land rather than fellowship with godly people. He chose to engage himself with the unrighteous. Furthermore, when you get to Genesis 19, <laughs> when the people were, were crowding against him, wanting to have these angelic beings so they could make sport with them, Lot was willing to give his pure daughters and defile their sexual purity in place of these angels. It's not a righteous, it's not a righteous action. And the angels who came to tell Lot of the coming judgment upon Sodom, literally, you get, had to drag him out of the city. Come on, Lot! You know, you get a sense of, no, wait, 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 wait. He's kind of dragged along by these two guys. You get that sense. It's like he didn't want to leave these sinful people. Finally, he was seduced by his daughters who wanted to raise up offspring for themselves. He let that happen to him. And yet Peter says he's righteous. So if Peter says he's righteous, he's righteous. You say, how, how is he righteous? I think the key here is this parenthetical verse, verse 7. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. As Lot saw the wickedness around him, his soul was in distress. His soul was in agony at the rebellion of others. And, and as Lot heard the way they talked, Heard the way they mocked God. His soul was in agony at how little they regarded the Lord. I sense that Lot didn't join them in their sin. He didn't mix with the sinful. 
in the city. In fact, instead, he was derided by the city as their judge. When he was telling them, battling with these angels, they said, This one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. They felt condemned because Lot was proclaiming to them the right way. They didn't like the right way. In that sense, he was righteous. He didn't join them. Instead, he suffered agony of soul. In this sense, he, he knew it was right, and knowing what's right, and yet being in a sinful environment and feeling the agony of soul, that was an identification of his righteousness. And let me ask you, is this, is this what you are like? When you are in the company of the ungodly, do you feel comfortable there? Like, hey, that's, that's where I belong. This is all right. Or is there a holy discomfort in your soul when you mix with sinful people? Do you feel like a, a fish out of water? Do you feel like an alien? Do you feel like a tormented soul? Or are you totally at ease? I think Lot's righteousness came about because he wasn't at ease. Because he saw the wickedness around him. He heard the wickedness around him. And he was tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. In that way, he was a righteous man. And the encouraging thing with Lot is this, that God rescued him. God went to great efforts to rescue him, sending two angels on a rescue mission to take him out safely. Well, I remember, this is probably 17 years ago, something like that, uh, a few months before Vaughn and I were married. The situation was I was living in Illinois, she's living in Los Angeles, and um, I was going to go out there to Los Angeles for a couple months before we got married and then moved back here to Illinois. So I was driving a car with my parents out to Los Angeles, and um, we drove all the way through from Illinois to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Drove through one night, and it was finally another. We finally went into a hotel room, totally cut off from the world, just kind of totally to drive in as much as we could, taking, taking turns sleeping and getting there. And we get to, get to Santa Fe, get to check in to the, um, the hotel. The clerk asked us where we're headed. And we say, we're heading to Los Angeles. And the uh, clerk said, wow, it's pretty bad there. And um, I'd lived there for a couple years. Yvonne was living there. I said, well, it's, it's not so bad. Actually, I've lived there for a couple years. It's okay. <laughs> Don't believe everything you hear about L.A. It's not the land of fruit and nuts entirely. Yes, there are some, but it's okay, is what I was assuring this guy. And uh, he said, no, no, the, the Rodney King verdict came out, and there are riots and fires in the city. And we're like, oh. Because we've been cut off from the news media for 36 hours, whatever it was. And uh, so we went to our hotel room and we turned the, the television on and there were fires coming up and there were looting and rioting. And, and at that point, I remember thinking how we're going to go on a rescue mission for Yvonne. And she's there in her apartment and we are going to go in and incognito drive to her apartment and get her in our car and then drive out and rescue her. Well... It wasn't that bad. <laughs> the, um, the rioting and stuff, it's probably a couple of miles away from you in Watts. I'm not sure how far away. How far away? Five miles? Ten miles away? Something like that. But it was bad enough that she said where she was in Westwood, uh, UCLA, she saw and smelled the smoke of everything that was burning because of the riots. But it, it wasn't so bad. But I, I remember the feeling of, of going on this rescue mission that we're going to rescue Yvonne 
from the troubles of the city. And I think that's what the angels probably felt in some sense. Okay, we're going to go in and rescue Lot. But this was a real rescue. And they knew the dangers and they went in and dragged him out of the city to safety just before the fire and brimstone fell on the city. And, and let me tell you, this is typical of what God does in rescuing the righteous from hard situations. He will rescue those who are in the midst of sin, who see the sin all around them and hate the sin around them. He will rescue those who see their own sin and cry to God for help, to, for deliverance from their own sin. God will rescue those people. In fact, the great promise of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 rings in my ears. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will provide the way of escape, that you will be able to endure it. If you look at verse 9, it is, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And God is faithful. He won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But rather, He rescues the godly. And that is the key verse of my text this morning. It's how the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And the severity of God to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. So when false teachers arise in the church and seek to mislead many, don't fret. Psalm 37 verse 1 says, Do not fret because of evildoers. Listen, God will take care of them. He's demonstrated His willingness and ability in the past. He'll carry out in the future. And regarding your own soul, be comforted to know that God will rescue you from temptation as you trust in Him and trust in Christ. Well, if today finds you rebelling against the Lord, look over chapter 3, verse 9. It said, The Lord is not slow about His promise. What kind of promise? The promise of return. The promise of destruction. God's not slow about His promise. As some count slowness. But He's waiting. He's patient. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to Repentance. You know, today is a day of salvation. Today is a day where repentance can come. If there's rebellion in the Lord, confess it and trust the Lord and realize that He can help you, He can deliver you, He can rescue you. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that verse 9 would ring true in our hearts that You know how to rescue the godly from temptation and You know how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. As we've seen these examples, Lord, I pray You'd help us. pray You'd keep us and protect us and guide us and guard us. God, for the wayward soul here in the room, I pray You'd convict him of sin, bring him back. I pray that the the sheer awfulness of the angels who are bound and, and, and millions and billions of people perhaps dying in a flood and Sodom and Gomorrah being reduced to ashes. May that, nothing else from fear, cause us to repent. And may we be encouraged by Noah and Lot, far from perfectly righteous people, yet, God, they believed You, they trusted You, and You protected them and guided them. I pray You'd help to learn from their example and be encouraged either way that you know how to protect and you know how to punish. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one thing before I let you go. I don't know if we can do that. 
One thing before I let you go, we're going to sing a song here at the end, but uh, tonight we do have our flocks, our small groups meeting together uh, at the landman's house, and Darren, the flock that Darren leads is going to be at our house. So I really encourage, it's going to be application of our message today, um, and our message probably from chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So come, if you say you, you, want, to, you want to be encouraged by things, come with that. Also, ladies' Bible study. Starts up on Tuesday. Man-to-man, boys and dads, Wednesday. And I think that's it. Is that it? Andy, let's sing this song. And then we'll carry on.